Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Jesus gained a reputation for quickly, quickly gained a reputation for wisdom and insight. Some of you know it goes all the way back when he was the age of 12, just become a man, regarded as an adult um, in the Jewish culture. When he had just become an adult, we have this story of him being in the temple, engaging in dialogue, asking questions and answering questions with the, 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 the people of the synagogue, the priests and the elders and the, and the teachers. And, and it says they were amazed, even then, uh, at his authority and at his wisdom. And as he goes through, he just speaks with a, with, a, with a wisdom. You know, we all recognize wisdom, I think, when we hear it. We don't always recognize folly when we hear it, but we do recognize wisdom when we hear it. And, and it kind of resonates with us, and we think that's, that's something. And I think there's also an authority he spoke with. He not only was able to, you know, the scriptures had authority for the Jews, and he was able to utilize that, to see that, to explain to them. But sometimes he spoke with an authority even beyond that, which, was, which they didn't understand. It, it both challenged them and encouraged them and sometimes confused them that he would say things that seemed to go beyond the authority of Scripture. And, but all of this, nonetheless, began to give him this reputation for somebody, nonetheless, who was a, a man worth asking questions of. That he would, he, would, he would dialogue with you, he would talk with you, and he just might give you some insight. And so we're going to look tonight at how Jesus answered just a few of those questions. But specifically, I want to look at three questions which all share a common trait. And I'm not going to tell you what that common trait is until the end. And I think the way that Jesus answers them mostly reveals something about the questioner. Almost more than it reveals the answer. Jesus does give answers, but his answers almost tell you more about the questioner. It's like he turns it back on them and shows something about them. And in that same light, I think it reveals something about us because we ask similar kinds of questions. And so I think it becomes something for us to think about. Interestingly enough, all of these three of these questions come from Matthew 22. And the fact that they all happen to come from the same chapter is probably just a way of showing you that this happens so often that I could have picked my three questions almost from any chapter in scripture. (laughs) But these three actually were ones I thought of. This is kind of a God thing. I thought of these without remembering where they were and then went and went, oh, they're all in the same chapter. How weird is that? So with that, that is almost as strong a mark of God's inspiration as if all of them had been written in alliteration. That would have been even better. But the first one is this. So Matthew 22, 23 through 33. By the way, even though they're all in Matthew 22, I'm not taking them in the order they are in Matthew because I have a different agenda than Matthew did, and that's okay. Matthew 22, 23 through 33 says this. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So it already tells us a little bit about who these people are. These are people called the Sadducees. I won't go into all of the the history, but essentially what happens leading up from from the exile after the Israelites are captured by the Babylonians, they live through the exile, their temple's destroyed, they go back and they rebuild the temple. But from that period forward, partly because they had to learn what it meant to worship God without a temple, partly because they began to have more documentation of the law, um, partly because they had a certain corruption in the priesthood that they kept trying to overturn and, and purify, what happens is in this period between the Old and the New Testament, essentially, you have 
uh, a, a real schism that happens in the Jewish world. That you then have all sorts of people who are kind of taking strong different stances. And many of them are political. Like one of the big divisions was, do we, do we follow the Hellenization of the whole world? For those of you who remember your history, Hellenization is the time period where, where the whole world became Greek. And Hellenization really just means becoming Greek in your culture. And everything kind of got overlaid with that. Well, that was a question for the Jews. Should we accept that Hellenization or should we resist it? And this became a point between, for example, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then it became question about which is more in temple, more in temple, which is more in temple, which is more important, the temple or the law? Because now, remember, they'd had a period of time where they lived without a temple. So some people said, well, that's not as important as the book. Are we the people of the book or are we the people of the temple? Here again, we have some schisms between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. As we get closer and closer to Jesus's time, there becomes this corruption within the priesthood. They become collaborators with the Romans. More than that, they become enamored with their own power. Then it becomes about holding on to that. And so you have schisms that develop about trying to purify that. So this is where we get things like the Essenes and the Zealots who are interested in just purifying the temple. So you've got all of these different groups. And one of these groups is called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees believed only essentially in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And there's very little in the Pentateuch. You could argue there's nothing in the Pentateuch about resurrection. Where do we learn about the Pentateuch in the Old Testament? I mean, about the resurrection in the Old Testament? We learn about it in the prophets. We learn about it in the Psalms. David talks about it. We learn about it a little bit in some of the histories that there's some, some, there's even people brought back to life in the histories, which in itself leads to the idea of resurrection. So the Sadducees, because they're clinging to the law, as they understand it being the first five books, they don't believe in resurrection. They think that's just something that's been made up and it doesn't have authority. And so they come, but they know that this is a hot topic. The Pharisees believe in resurrection. The Sadducees don't. That means there is a schism. That means your typical Jew is wrestling with that. It is one of those things that they might get together and discuss and argue about in a way that today people might argue about predestination versus free will. So they would get together. They would argue about the resurrection. So to pin Jesus down is what these uh, Sadducees want to do. They want to force him to take a stand so that then they can say, yes, he's good, or no, he's not. He can't be the Messiah because he believes in the resurrection, or he could be because he doesn't. They just don't know yet for sure if they're in his camp, and so they want to identify his camp. And so that's why it starts by saying that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. I want you to notice one thing. This is not the common trait I'm going to point out later, but all of these questions are asked with a certain flattering tone to them, which is a little bit annoying because it really is in some ways just flattery. They don't know if he's a teacher or not. That's, they're trying to find out, but they start that way. So teacher, they said, Moses tells us. Notice, where do they go back to for their authority? The law to Moses. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Interestingly enough, we actually talked about this last week or a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this as part of the law. It says, now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? First of all, I don't know about you, but I don't believe them. 
I'm a little bit skeptical that this is someone they actually know. See how they phrase it, though? One of us. I mean, it's possible, and I know that the mortality rate was higher back then, but to run through seven brothers in nice, convenient order like this, and the woman still lives, it's, I'm skeptical. Plus, it's just such a nice, convenient little logic puzzle for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, this is the way they're saying, see, the resurrection makes no sense. Because what are you going to do with this woman? Is she suddenly going to be married to seven men in heaven? How are you going to answer that one, Jesus? And Jesus' answer, his first answer, is very interesting. He says this, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Okay, first of all, I can only imagine how peaked they were, how annoyed they were to be told that they don't know the scriptures. This is what they pride themselves on. We know the Pentateuch. We know the law. We know the scriptures. And they just brought up this scripture and said, see, this is what it tells us. And Jesus says to them, well, you're in error. So he is telling them a little bit, which Campy comes down on. But he says, you're in error. But he says this, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Here's the thing I think that Jesus wants to say to them is that this whole riddle that you've set up for me, this whole little trap that you think you're going to grab me with, this whole little question that to you proves there is no resurrection, proves nothing of the sort, all it proves is that you are unwilling to believe that God might be more creative and imaginative and capable of answers that you can't even begin to envision. You look at the world you live, you look at marriage as you understand it now, and you say there can be no resurrection because if it was, if there was, and if we all went to heaven, then it would look just like it looks now, and that would be a problem. And Jesus says, your problem, your error, is that you're just, you're just not thinking enough. You're not imaginative enough. You don't believe in the power of God that he might be able to do something wonderful and amazing and incredible. Now, this is part of the answer. Because that is part of the reason they don't believe in the resurrection. Because Jesus says to them, you look at the Pentateuch and you think, well, there's no resurrection there. Therefore, God can't do anything of the sort. And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures because there isn't a single scripture that tells you there's no resurrection. And you don't believe in the power of God because you can't even envision that God might be able to do something that you've never seen or heard of. Their real problem, he says to them, before he even begins to give them more of an answer, your real problem, he says, is not an intellectual one. Your problem is not theological. Your problem is a lack of humility, a lack of awe, an unwillingness to accept there might be bigger things than you can imagine. He says to them, essentially, I recognize that your question is not a real question. It's not a question posed of genuine confusion or a genuine desire to learn something new. It's simply a question designed to show your own brilliance. You are hoping that people watching you in dialogue with me will not hear me give you an answer. You're hoping that you, people will watch and they will think, ooh, did you hear that question? That was brilliant. The way they asked that was amazing. In fact, he says, the real problem with your question is not just that you're trying to trap me, this human that you see in front of you, but you're trying to show through your brilliance that God is trapped, that God, by your logic, cannot 
be capable of resurrection. Because if he does, he will be twisted up in knots because of the brilliant way you've shown him that he made a mistake in this law or he makes a mistake in resurrection, but the two of them can't be together. You say there can be no resurrection because of this law of God to which we cannot envision an answer. Therefore, there must not be one. And this is, with that understanding, with him saying to them, you are too short-sighted, you're too narrow, you don't have a sense of awe or wonder, there's no humility, you think you understand how everything goes. It's under that context that he then goes on to say this, All, at the resurrection, well, if they were looking for that answer, he's given it. He's about to say, here's what happens at the resurrection, so yes, I believe in a resurrection. But he says, at the resurrection, people will mar neither marry nor be given in marriage they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, this is interesting, and there's something ironically that happens about this. Now, first of all, I enjoy my marriage a great deal. I know that isn't true of everybody, but I do. And the idea of an eternity in heaven without being married to my wife, is, it sounds bleak. It sounds like deprivation. It sounds like a loss. But if I stop there, I am running into exactly the same error that they were running into. Jesus is not saying to them, the answer to your question is that at the resurrection, things will be less. There will be loss. There will be deprivation. No, his answer to them is, at the resurrection, things will be so much different and so much better that you can't even begin to envision what it is. I don't think his story here is that there's no marriage in heaven, so get over it. You're going to lose that. I think his story here is that what we think of as marriage here will be so vastly different and better in heaven. Whatever the relationship, the fellowship, the intimacy, whatever it is that we long for, that we love about marriage, it will be so much more wonderful than that in heaven that marriage will seem to be a toy. And the fact that we can't envision, or I personally can't envision what that could possibly look like, is not trapping God. It's simply revealing, I don't have enough awe. I don't have enough wonder. So if you read this answer from Jesus and the conclusion you come to is, Oh, yeah, God did trap himself, and now because he said that, and all these people get married, and then they can't be all married to different people in heaven, I guess God will just have to say there's no marriage. You're, you're, you're doing what the Sadducees were doing. And you're saying, just because I can't envision it, God can't do it. I think Jesus is meaning to say that God is capable of something even greater than marriage, even more intimate and wonderful and supporting and loving. I don't think any of our relationships will be destroyed. That doesn't seem in keeping with who God is, but something new and better will be added to them. Our response to this verse should be like God in challenging the Sadducees. It should be one of wonder and awe. It should be, wow, I wonder what God's going to do that's going to be even better than this. And he goes on and he says, so first of all, that's your problem. He says, you, th you, you think you've trapped me with this marriage thing, but you don't understand. Marriage is a now thing. It's not an eternal thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just going to be so different. You can't envision God doing something different. And then he goes on and he says this about the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so to give you a clear answer, he says. Let me give you an answer and notice where he gives the answer from. He gives it from the Pentateuch. He gives it from the first five books, not from the prophets, not from the histories. This is what he says. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. He says to them, you want to talk about God doing something silly? You think it's silly for him to do this marriage law and then say that you could be resurrected? How silly is it that God spends most of Genesis saying to people, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, dead people. Why does God want to declare that he's the God of dead people? Why does it matter if he's the God of your ancestors if they're dead? He says, that's not who your God is. 
Your God is the God of living people. Which, again, in an attempt to strike some wonder and awe and humility in, in them is a way of saying, you don't believe in the resurrection? You know who does now? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know why they do? Because they're alive. <laughs> it's, it's a crazy moment for him to speak. And it says when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So here they came to trap Jesus to show how brilliant they were. And when the crowds hear this, what they really hear is, wow, I don't know what they were asking, but the answers Jesus gave, they lead me to astonishment. They lead me to wonder. They lead me to awe. They lead me to just something bigger is happening here than the Sadducees are able to contain. God does give them a sort of theological answer at the end there, the one they were requesting. But honestly, it's just a, a clear declaration of how big God is. How God, how, how, how small do they think God is to declare himself God of people who are dead? And that's, I think, what astonishes the crowd is that he calls them and invites them into this wonder, to this awe, to this opportunity to think that what God is calling them to might be bigger than, than, than the first five books of the Old Testament. And that leads us to a question that I think we should always ask in our questions. See, we question God a lot too, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's not a point in here, even when Jesus shows the error of their questions, there's never a point at which Jesus says to the Sadducees, I wish you'd stop asking questions. Because the fact that they ask, even if they're just trying to trap him, is also the fact that it gives them an opportunity to push them to something else. And so it's okay, it's good for us to ask questions, but as we ask questions of God, as we ask questions of life, as we try to figure out what's what and what's not, as we have our theological and political debates with each other, I think we ought to think about something that relates to what Jesus told them to think about. And that's to ask yourself a question about your question. And the first question is, is your question coming from a place of wonder and humility? So many of our questions of God or even of each other are simply challenges to people or even God to recognize our brilliance. Let's be honest. How many political arguments, theological arguments do you get in where really as you ask questions, what you're hoping people will do is see how smart you are? I have some examples, I think. You know, one thing that's really occurred to me uh, recently, and there's the, obviously, the, you know, pro-life and pro-choice is very much in the news right now. And, um, you know, for, for our church, you know, I'll tell you two things so that you can, you can know these two things uh, about me and about our leadership. So the first thing I want to tell you is that we not too long ago among our leaders, our focus group leaders, we had a discussion about pro-life and pro-choice and where people stood. And I want you to understand the purpose of that discussion was not to all be on the same page. And we concluded that discussion, we weren't all on the same page. There's some disagreement about that. And I want you to know that's not only okay in our church, that gives me great encouragement. Because I want us not to define ourselves by our particular approaches and applications and political ideologies that are in line with theology or not. I want us to define ourselves by an earnest desire to seek the Lord. And I believe that if our leaders are doing that, they will of course all come to the conclusions that I hold. I mean to the right conclusions. <laughs> Now, the reality is I know that I could be wrong about anything. And so I'd rather they follow Jesus and avoid the possible errors that I might make. Having said that, I'm pro-life. So those are two things you can know. I happen to be pro-life. 
it's okay in our church and even among our leadership that there's question about that and disagreement about that. But here's one thing I have been thinking a lot about pro-life and pro-choice, and here's the reason I bring it up. Not to tell you what you should believe and not to tell you you shouldn't ask questions about it. In fact, I wish you would. Because I think our real problem is we don't ask enough questions about it. I think our real problem is this. How often in a discussion, whether you're on the pro-life or the pro-choice side, how often do you actually hear anybody approach it with a sense of wonder about the creation of life that is occurring in our discussion? I mean, wherever you stand, you believe that at some point a human is created. And, and our arguments about when that happens seem to me to have missed the point that we should be treating this whole conversation with a little bit of awe. Because we're talking about human life being created. And I'm not saying this just as, uh, to say that therefore pro-life is right. No, honestly, I hear a lot of pro-life arguments which take a lot of certainty about how life is created, when is life created, and how it happens. And I've got to say, I'm pro-life not because I know when life begins, but because I don't. And a lot of people on the pro-life side have forgotten about the awe and the wonder and the humility. And a lot of people on the pro-choice side have forgotten about the awe and the wonder and the humility. And I think if we approach these conversations with each other and our questions were not simply questions to show how brilliant we are and how we have the right answer and how everybody should be the same political ideology we are, but if instead we approach this question with a degree of awe, saying we are talking about the beginnings of human life, I think we might be able to have discussions that might be more than simply shouting matches. I think, I think questions about resurrection and afterlife are the same thing, right? We, we can have all sorts of arguments within the church about what heaven should or shouldn't look like and whether dogs go to heaven, whether all of them do or only mine or whatever. We can have discussions about whether heaven is paved with actual streets of gold or not. We can have discussions about hell. Is it eternal torment? Is it annihilation? Does it exist? Again, I have pretty traditional orthodox views on all that, if you're curious. But again, can we actually even have those questions without a sense of humility? Who here has been there? <laughs> Who among us has actually visited? If we lose the sense of awe and wonder and humility and think about the fact that 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 maybe there is a way that God can intertwine justice and mercy so perfectly that, that the real point of afterlife is that all things will be made right? I think there's so much wonder and awe in that that I can't begin to identify what that actually looks like. I can't even really wrap my mind around an eternity where there's no sorrow. Can you? Because has that ever happened in your current life? Of course not. But it doesn't mean it can't just because we can't figure out how. I have a hard time understanding how God's mercy and justice come together in the judgment of the end times and hell. But the fact that I can't envision it doesn't mean that God can't. So in all of our discussions and all our questions and all our challenges to God or to each other, I think we need to ask this question. Is your question really coming from a place of wonder and humility? If you've already decided the answers, then don't bother to ask the questions. The only questions that I think are questionable <laughs> are those where you already know the answer. You're not interested in potentially changing your mind. You're not interested in learning something wonderful and brand new. So that's question one, and that's one of the ways we should respond to it. We'll come back to this 
in a second. Here's the other question that we have in Matthew 22. And again, this one actually precedes the previous question in Matthew's reckoning. But in verses 15 through 22, it says this, then the Pharisees went out. So this is the, we have the Sadducees. Now we've got another group. Here's the Pharisees coming to Jesus. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. This one is really up front, right? Matthew's like, the Pharisees, their reason they're asking a question is just to trap him. I think the Sadducees were too, but, but here Matthew's just making that abundantly clear. Probably the reason he makes it here, clear here and not in the Sadducees is, remember, in his reckoning, this story's first. So by the time you get to the Sadducee question, we're already in that mindset. These are to trap him. But it says they set out to trap him. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So... The Herodians, another one of these schisms. And the Herodians believed that we should be following Herod. Herod declared him, you may not know this about King Herod because he was so cruel and he was so mean to Jews in Jesus' time. But here's what you should know. Herod claimed his entire life that he was a Jew and that he was sympathetic to Jews. Historically, that's probably nonsense, but that's what he claimed. It was a way of kind of currying favor with everybody along the way. And so you had a group of Jews who were in the camp of, we should support Herod. He's in our camp. Um, hopefully without stirring up a hornet's nest, I would say it's probably similar to the way that we have some evangelicals who would say we should support Trump because he's in our corner. I let you argue in your own homes about whether that's accurate or not, but it's a similar feel that the Jews had with, the, with Herod and the Herodians. So it's interesting, the Pharisees, who do not have a lot of compatibility with the Herodians, nonetheless intentionally send them along when they want to trap Jesus because the question they're about to ask is one that helps them know which camp is Jesus in. Is he a Herodian or is he not? At least they thought it would go there. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Flattery, 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 flattery. We already know they're trying to trap him. They don't mean any of this. But they're like, here's the Herodians. We know you won't be swayed by them and your answer. What's your answer? Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Big question. It's a big question politically. It's a big question theologically. It's a big question because this was the political hot potato that so many of them argued over. Some said, if we pay the tax to Caesar, we are essentially paying a tithe to a Roman god because that's what the Caesars say they are. Others said, we don't have to acknowledge them as gods simply to pay the tax. We're simply honoring the governmental structures we're in, and we get the benefits of the roads and what have you as well. But it became a really significant hot topic and the Herodians of course said you absolutely must pay those taxes so they went to pin Jesus down how much of a revolutionary can be he's kind of a populist guy he's got a populist message he's got a crowd of people who are all across the spectrum but if he comes down right now and says you must pay your taxes or you must not pay your taxes then he's going to lose part of his crowd hopefully they're hoping they can trap him and they say to him tell us then what is your opinion is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? What do they want? They want a yes or no answer. They want a yes or no answer. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying a tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. That may not sound like an amazing answer. Let's talk about this a little bit. 
So here's what happens is Jesus says, first of all, he shows that he knows what's happening. Like with the Sadducees, before he gives the answer, he gets on them about their reason for asking the question. And the first thing he does is call them hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to believe one thing, but is really holding on to something else. They're flattering him. They're pretending that they want to learn something, but they have no interest in that. They simply want to trap him. And it reveals some of their hypocrisy. It's going to go deeper than this, but even just in this, in that they pretend they want to learn from him, that, they're in, that this question is being asked because they want to know. They're just really torn over the fact of if they should pay their taxes or not. Jesus, tell us what to do. Jesus says, you hypocrite, you could care less about that. He says, bring me, bring me a denarius. Who's on it? Caesar, they said. So this is funny because this is like, you know, that, that old thing that we always say. Someone's like, that's my chair. What, what, what's, what's the really annoying thing that you could say? I don't see your name on it. So Jesus is just like, Who's, whose name is on this coin? Caesar's. Whose image? Caesar's. It looks to me like it belongs to him. Give it back to him. That's essentially what he says. <laughs> he created it. He put his name on it. It's not even yours anyway. So give it back to him. But then he says this, and to God, what is God's? What is God's name on? What is God's image on? What did God create? Everything. <laughs> Everything. I mean, this is really, I think, where the amazement comes. This is the more important point. Jesus is, among other things, saying to them, you know, this question about taxes, let's settle a bigger question first. It's like he's saying, I don't even really care. Take the coin, give it to Caesar. But that's not really the important point. The thing you're wrestling with, Pharisees, is are you giving to God what's God's? Are you recognizing him? Why are we even discussing this about Caesar? Caesar compared to God is nothing. He's so little. Notice in his answer, he is affirming that we shouldn't worship Caesar. But he's saying you can pay your taxes in a sense here because it's so nothing compared to the real question. The real question is, will you give God what is God's? When he calls them hypocrites, this is what he's really talking about. You think you're here, you're here showing how righteous you are by your answer, whatever it is regarding the taxes. Herodians, you think you're showing your righteousness here by showing us whatever your answer is about taxes. But the truth is, neither of you are really concerned about what God wants. You're just concerned about this weird momentary, mostly unimportant question. And the bigger question is, are you giving everything to God? Jesus is saying you truly have a question not about paying taxes, but something else. Something you're hiding behind a mask of flattery and an appearance of righteous concern. The truth is, while you're pretending you just want to honor God, the reality is you don't want to honor God. If you did, you would honor me instead of trapping me. It's like Jesus is saying two things. He's saying, first of all, this is not an either-or question. And the fact that you're phrasing it as that is only because you want to trap me. It's really a both-and. There's no reason, says Jesus, you can't pay taxes to Caesar and honor God at the same time. But that's also not really the totality of the answer because... That, that doesn't mean that then you can just go pay taxes and say, see, I'm paying taxes and honoring God because the question still exists, are you honoring God? And guess what? What if you decide not to pay taxes? That also doesn't tell me you're honoring God. 
He's saying it's not an either or, it's a both and, but the, but the more important point is this. The question itself posed by you and those who disagree with you, in fact, all of those involved in this argument, says Jesus, are showing that what you really want is not to honor God at all. Because for those of you who believe you shouldn't pay taxes, it's a red herring, allowing you to do what you want to do by claiming to be honoring God. But you're being duplicitous, and that's not honoring God. And for those who believe you should pay taxes, it's a red herring, allowing you to show how much you honor God by honoring the law. But that's also duplicitous, because you're still not worried about honoring God. This is all a red herring. This question is all just about looking righteous. And the irony, says Jesus, is whether you pay taxes or don't pay taxes, you're both claiming you're doing it because you're more righteous than the others. And Jesus says, that doesn't tell me who's more righteous. You know what tells me who's more righteous? What are you giving to God? So I think a second question that we can ask about our questions is, number one, is your question coming from a place of wonder and humility? And number two, is your question simply using self-righteousness to avoid actually serving God? Interestingly enough, I think we have a really recent picture of this same argument. And it's how we respond to the pandemic as a church. And I want you to notice that no matter which side you're on, it doesn't prove you're honoring God. Yet both sides used it to prove they were honoring God. Notice how often the question was asked, right? Do we need to wear masks or should we gather together at all or not? Notice how often that question was asked, not truly to seek what would glorify God most, but asked simply as a way of justifying our own self-righteousness. For those who said we should meet and we don't have to wear masks, we justified our bravery. And for those of us who said we need to wear masks and not meet, we justified our love. And between the two of us, we simply said that we are the more righteous of the two. You should do what we say to do. Does that mean nobody was right? No, of course not. It doesn't mean nobody was right. And it doesn't mean that nobody was doing it out of a desire to honor God. I certainly like to think that the decisions we made as a church I made from my best understanding of how to honor God. But what we have to understand is this argument itself cannot ever become the defining characteristic of whether you honor God or not. Because if it is, you're showing that you don't care about honoring God. You care about looking like you're taking the right and bold righteous stand. And I think Jesus would also say, does it have to be either or? Can you not be both brave and loving? <laughs> yes, at some point, you have to decide if you're going to take that coin and give it to Caesar. And yes, at some point, you have to decide to put on a mask or not. And you have to decide to meet or not. But again, what's the question you're actually asking? Is it simply a question that you're using to avoid actually serving God? Or is it a question that you're asking about how can I serve God best at this moment, at this time, in this place? with this context. And from what I saw as the arrows were shot back and forth at each other, there was a whole lot of this. So it's a question we have to ask. Next question from Matthew 22, and this actually begins in Matthew 22, um, but it go I didn't change the, the uh, I just realized I didn't change the reference. This is actually from Luke. Because although I said it was in Matthew 20, 22, it's true. The question is in Matthew 22, but Luke records more detail about the conversation than Matthew does. Okay? So this is actually Luke, and I don't have the reference in front of me. If you're dying to know, uh, ask me later. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up 
to test Jesus. Expert in the law. So we don't know specifically, is this a Pharisee, a Sadducee, what is this? But it's, it is one of those people who believes they understand the law. This is not a, the law of Rome. This is the law of the Jews. This is the law of God. This is the Old Testament. Could be a Sadducee or a Pharisee with that term. So an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, we know right away this isn't a question he's asking because he actually feels he's in danger and needs to know how to inherit eternal life. It says he's trying to test Jesus. And the word test here, I think, has more to do with trapping than it does with sort of feeling him out. But the only way you can test somebody with a question is if you know the answer to the question. Do you hear that? Right? If I'm going to do a test and I do a test and I ask you questions and you put the answers, if I, if I wanted to test all of you how good you were at calculus, it would be terrible because I could give you questions and then I would go to grade the test and I would have no idea. I'd have to give it to Joseph who understands calculus and I don't. So for him to come up and test Jesus by asking this question means he's already not asking the question with a great deal of wonder and humility because he thinks he knows the answer, doesn't he? He just wants to see if Jesus does. So he says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I love this. Jesus is like, well, you're an expert in the law. So you think you know the answer. I'll ask it back to you. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the guy's like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say when you read it? You're the expert. And he says, well, I should love God with everything I have. That's back to the, what are you going to give God? And I should love people as myself, right? And Jesus says, good, what are you asking me for? But listen to the next line. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, here's what I love about this. Jesus is very smart. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He does simply say, look, you got it. You're doing it right. Why are you asking me? To which the teacher of the law thinks, yeah, but he's not taking me seriously. Right? He's just like, threw it back at me. What is his answer? And not only that, now we're in this dialogue, and I've just said the key is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now I'm thinking back through this, and Jesus just said, do this and you will live. But what does Jesus mean by that? Because he might accuse me of not loving my neighbor. And it says he wants to justify himself, which in this context is pretty simple. It means he wants a narrow enough definition of neighbor that it excludes all those people that he doesn't love. <laughs> so we already know this question, who is my neighbor, is asked with one goal. What's that goal? To justify himself. Not to learn anything. Not to change. But to not have to change to just keep doing what he's doing. So we can clearly see the man wanted to justify himself. He wants to be able to say he's kept the commandments correctly and he's hoping Jesus will help him provide a definition which he can then follow because it excludes all those people. In fact, really what he wants is a definition which says your neighbor is the people you love. Now go love your neighbor. And isn't that really the definition we all want? Because <laughs> that, that's a piece of cake. Except as even that we fail, wouldn't we? Because <laughs> that keeps changing. Tomorrow, you're not my neighbor because I don't love you anymore. Well, so this is when Jesus tells the story we're all familiar with. It says, in reply, Jesus said this. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is, a, this is kind of just a simple, you're, 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 you're an audience. You've all read something at some point in your life. Hopefully some fiction at some point. And when you're reading fiction, notice that Jesus sets up a story and he gives you no details about the main character. Now, he does tell us he's a man because the person he's speaking to is a man. And by giving no other details, I think what Jesus is intending is that this man will identify with that character. Do you understand that? He's like, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the teacher's picturing himself in that role. And he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. I want you to notice, just because it's easy to miss in the story, he doesn't go drop the guy off at the inn. What does he do that whole first day? He nurses his wounds. He, this is a very hands-on approach to help, isn't it? Picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the hotel, cares for him at the, ho at the inn, hotel, inn, cares for him at the inn, bandages his wounds. Then the next day, I mean, he's probably got stuff. He was traveling somewhere. <laughs> the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every, every extra expense you have. Look, I've got this guy. He's there. Can you make sure he gets fed? Can you just make sure he doesn't die on you? I'll be back, and I'll pay you for all of it. Look, regardless of what else I'm going to tell you about the story, which most of you have heard and already know, this is still an ama this is amazing in its own right. This is farther than many people would go, right? You don't have to be the Levite or the priest to simply walk by and do nothing. But it's a long cry from that to be the guy who picks him up, puts him on a donkey, takes him to an inn, nurses him for 24 hours, pays for the rest of his health care, and then comes back to take care of him. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot for anybody. Then, of course, as you all know, Jesus has, has pulled a switcheroo on this guy. He's made the guy that he's talking to be the victim. And then he's had the victim saved by one of the people that this guy was trying to exclude from the neighbors he should love. <laughs> Jesus knew that about him. You're a teacher of the law. You're an expert in the law. I, we won't go into all the details, but let's say that the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans goes back all the way to previous to the Babylonian exile. And it picks up heat after the Babylonian exile. And those of you who've read the story of Nehemiah, there's a character in there who keeps trying to prevent Nehemiah from building the walls. That guy is a Samaritan. And about 100 years after that, the Samaritans build their own temple on an entirely different place. And you can just see how the schism grows and grows and grows from there. I mean, there's deep enmity, theological, racial. It's all there. And it's all justified in their eyes. Every Jew who hates a Samaritan doesn't feel like he has to make, explain why. Even the Samaritans don't feel like you have to explain why. You know why? Because the Samaritans are busy justifying their own hatred for the Jews. 
So Jesus knows that this is the guy. This is absolutely one of the people that, that he was hoping Jesus would eliminate from the need to love. And he doesn't tell a story in which this man loves the Samaritan. He tells a story in which this man is loved by a Samaritan. And then he says to the, 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 the teacher of the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Again, Jesus gets to tell the story. He gets to set it up so the extremes are obvious. He certainly cannot say that the Levite was a neighbor in any way. He cannot say the priest was a neighbor in any way. And yet both of those would have been people that this man would have called his neighbors. Well, this man has at least enough integrity to hear the story and say, the story, given the way you laid it out, there's only one answer. I find it interesting that the man does not say the Samaritan. That would be the obvious and easy way to say the answer, but he can't bring himself to say that, can he? <laughs> what he says is, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Let's just not talk about who that is, but we can see from what he did that he was a neighbor to that man. Notice how Jesus flips the entire question on his head. He didn't say, this is who your neighbor is. He said to him, guess what? You get to decide who you're going to be a neighbor to. And if you want to identify and narrow it down and say the neighbors are only the people that I love, then Jesus says, in one sense, I completely agree with you. Now go be a neighbor to everybody, which means love them. What does love look like? It's a lot. It's a lot. The man who says, he, who is my neighbor, is hoping to limit the scope of who he should love. And Jesus, at the end of the story, asks not who is the Samaritan's neighbor, but who is the victim's neighbor. Our neighbor, in other words, he says, is anyone who needs us. We are therefore called to love anyone who needs love. And you know what's hardest about that statement? Is usually the people who need love the most are the people that you're less inclined to love. Because they're not that lovable. I mean, that's true of all of us, but it's easier to scorn that in others. In fact, when you bring it all together, the answer that Jesus gives to this man's justification comes down to one sentence that he concludes all of this with. He says, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's it. Who's my neighbor? I don't know. Why don't you go find someone and love them? And then you found your answer. Go and do likewise. This question was supposed to be an out. And in Jesus' answer, he ends up inviting him in. The question was supposed to limit the scope of who his neighbor would be. And instead, Jesus has now expanded it to the entire universe. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing to ask a question of Jesus. Is your question coming from a place of wonder and humility? None of these questions were. Is your question simply using self-righteousness to avoid actually serving God? Notice how all of these questions were doing that. And finally, is your question really just an attempt to justify bad behavior? Our world is full of the ability to justify hatred. I am both concerned and perplexed and amazed with the fine art and skill to which our current culture has brought this ability to justify any amount of hatred. I, I, I want to say 
clearly because I think it is a thing of our times. I, I don't know that I would say this as strongly if we just didn't live when and where we live. But Christians, there is less and less room for any conspiracy theories at all. Conspiracy theories almost entirely have become simply a way to justify hatred. Do, do you realize almost every conspiracy theory embraced by anybody in our culture right now has anti-Semitic roots? Almost all of them justify hating a Jew somewhere. Many, many of them justify hating people on the other side of the political aisle right now. If you can think of a single conspiracy theory which makes you more likely to love your enemy, then I say you can keep that one. Even if it's wrong, you're not doing much harm. If you can think of a cons single conspiracy theory which doesn't make you feel better about hating someone, then maybe you can keep that one. But if you find your conspiracy theories suddenly are giving you the room to hate people because they deserve that hate, because the conspiracy theory tells you so, then you are justifying your hatred as surely as the man to whom Jesus told this Good Samaritan story is telling it. And whoever is the brunt of your conspiracy theory, Jesus would say to you, when you are lying in the gutter and that man helps you out, he is your neighbor. And how can you not go and do likewise? Tribalism. Tribalism is also a curse in our culture right now. The fact that we side with a side, and in that side we then justify our hatred of all other sides. Tribalism in the Good Samaritan has become just a means of justifying at best indifference. You walk on by. Tribalism, our culture, has become a means of justifying hatred and enmity. If your tribe, I do want to encourage tribalism. Are you surprised I just said that based on what I just said? Yes. But here's the tribalism I want to encourage. You are part of a tribe whose only requirement is that you follow Christ. And if you are in the tribe of those who follow Christ and your tribal leader is Jesus, then you should know and you should hear with complete understanding and certainty that in our tribe, we do not justify for hatred for anyone ever under any circumstances. Not even for those who themselves are justifying hatred. That's our tribe. Be part of a tribe, be part of that tribe. The truth is, with all these questions, they're not questions. <laughs> I said these all had common trait. Here's the common trait. None of these questions are really questions in search of an answer. Each of these are just questions, are really just challenges in search of vindication. Personal justification. Personal vindication. I know that you've had this experience with someone, maybe with kids, maybe with siblings, maybe just with someone who annoys you, that you have this experience where they keep asking questions and you keep giving them answers. And at a certain point you realize, because they keep throwing up more challenges and scenarios and hypotheticals and yeah, but what if this woman marries 15 men? They keep throwing up these things and at a certain point you just realize they don't want an answer, do they? They aren't looking for answers, they're looking for roadblocks. So knowing that you've seen that in other people, take a step back and recognize you also have been that person. <laughs> you know, avoiding the gospel applies here for sure. I've known lots of people throughout my life 
who have asked questions about the gospel, who have had issues intellectually, emotionally, theologically, and some of them have asked the questions and come to a place of belief, and they are now believers, part of the tribe. But I've also known people who asked questions, and it became clear they didn't want answers. They simply wanted to vindicate their own lack of belief. They simply want to vindicate their, their not having to serve God. They simply wanted to vindicate they're not having to embrace something which says to them, you have to now follow a new leader. They want to vindicate staying outside the tribe. It's a really important question. Which kind of questions you're asking. If you're someone who has not embraced the gospel, ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. But make sure you're looking for answers. Because I believe the answers are there. But this not only applies to the gospel, it also applies to those of us who already embrace the gospel, but it applies to questions about following Jesus wherever he goes. Every step of the way, there will be something that will come up that you will not want to serve God. And then you've got all sorts of means. You are so clever. You have got all sorts of questions you can ask, which will help you avoid serving God. Because you've got to figure out first whether you need to take that denarius and give it back to Caesar or not. Make sure you figure that out first. So you never have to serve God. Make sure that your focus and emphasis is on that mask. Rather than upon real faith and real love. You know, even questions about whether it's worth following Jesus or not. That's a legitimate question. Jesus says count the cost, but do you really want the answer? Because I believe there are answers that will tell you it's absolutely worth it. But if you just are asking that question as a roadblock because you've already decided it's not worth it, then no amount of answers are going to get you there. So think about it. Are your questions of the one kind or the other? Because questions are good. Because on the other hand, from all these questions that we've talked about, we've got all sorts of other questioners in Scripture. We've got Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, mostly because I think he's not trying to trap Jesus in front of a crowd. He genuinely wants to know, who are you? What are you saying? And yeah, they have some dialogue, and Nicodemus argues with him, but even there, his arguments are all... He's, he's digging in. He's going further. And you get a sense of wonder and awe in Nicodemus's questions, not flattery and self-righteousness. And we see the fruit of that later in that Nicodemus is one of those who, who goes to the tomb with Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus. We know the Pharisees in the book of Acts are followers of Jesus. I, get, I would gather these are probably of the generation of Nicodemus in some ways. So he asked real questions, but he asked them because he really wanted to learn. The woman at the well, Jesus sits down with a Samaritan woman at the well. She asks a bunch of theological questions, heavy, abstract theological questions. But at the end of it, she walks away and says, Jesus knows everything about me, which is such a statement of hyperbole. It just tells you what she's feeling. We have Job in the Old Testament who asks every sorts of question you can imagine. But when Jesus gives him answers, Job hears, or when God gives him answers, Jesus, Job hears them. We've got Habakkuk, the only prophet in the Old Testament whose entire prophecy is one big question that remains unanswered. And yet at the end of it being unanswered, Habakkuk is still full of wonder and awe. And so many others. So am I saying don't ask questions? I'm not. But I'm saying you have this incredible opportunity to ask questions of the Lord and actually find incredible, wonderful answers. So if you think about their questions, those people we just talked about, Nicodemus and Job and a lot of those guys, and you can read all about them, 
but this is the essence of who they are. You say, did their questions come from a place of wonder and humility? Yes. In fact, their questions came from a place of wonder and humility, and because of that, they were able to receive wonderful and awesome answers. I really wanted to say awful, because I mean full of awe, but you guys, none of us know what awful means anymore. Sounds terrible. But I just mean they received answers which made them feel full of awe and feel the wonder of the world. The thing you get from Nicodemus when he walks away from his conversation with Jesus is he understands no more than he did when he got there, but he's amazed at it. <laughs> Were their questions simply using self-righteousness to avoid actually serving God? No. In fact, their questions avoided self-righteousness, and because of that, they were actually able to see God. Nicodemus saw something in Jesus that so many of his colleagues missed because he wasn't interested in how he looked. Were they just an attempt to justify bad behavior? No, in fact, the opposite is true of them. They were looking for justification to change. They were looking for reasons to change rather than remain the same. And as a result of that and asking their questions, they were changed. The woman at the well was not happy with who she was and where she was. And as a result of her questions, she changes. Nicodemus wasn't content with who he was in all his prestige. And as a result of that, he changes. We want our questions to come from a place of wonder and humility because that's when you receive wonderful answers. We want our questions to avoid self-righteousness and really be seeking God because God says, when you do that, I'll reveal myself. And we want our questions to really be looking for reasons to change because deep down we all know we need to. <laughs> and then God will change you in ways that you cannot do yourself. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.